This is Mike Schellenberger for Public. I'm so excited to interview my friend, uh, Chris Rufo, who is now widely viewed as the most effective conservative activist in the country. Also, uh, his new book is uh, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. It debuted as the number one book on Amazon. I actually have two copies of it because when I was in London, staying with Winston Marshall, a copy came for him and I assumed it was for me because the publisher was supposed to send it to me. So I, I took it. So I have two copies of this book and, and read it on my way back. And it's an absolutely fantastic history of the radical left. Um, and I would just say this label of you as a conservative activist, I think, uh, should not scare off people who don't think of themselves as conservatives, because I think that even if you're on the radical left, I think this is a fascinating book. And I think we all have the experience of reading books that are written by people that we don't agree with, but we still get a ton out of. But anyway, I could go on for a long time talking about Chris Rufo, um, a very important uh, public figure, somebody I've, I've gotten to know better over the last several years. Chris, welcome to public. It's great to be with you. And I think that the, the point you raise is a, is a good one. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned it because I, I wrote the book um, not as a one-sided conservative polemic that treats um, you know, my intellectual opponents with condescension and disdain and dismissiveness as, as we see in, in unfortunately so many conservative books. Or you know, I, I tried to write it first with a, a kind of human understanding of the subjects, of the people that I'm profiling, of the ideas that I'm cataloging. And of course, I have my opinion. I, you know, that's, that's evident. I, I, I don't deny it at all. But I, I think, and so far, we've had actually quite a nice reception on the political left, which I'm gratified um, to, have, to have seen, because they say, hey, wow, I'm kind of surprised. You're the fire-breathing right-wing activist, but you wrote a kind of sensitive and intelligent critique of, of our ideas, um, but in a way that is actually fruitful to engage with. And so that, that's, that's the hope. You know? that's, I think that's the hope for, for me, and I know the hope for you as well um, is to have a wide audience and, and to engage uh, even substantively with critics. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. So I don't want to, I mean, obviously I read it and um, have a lot of thoughts and questions about it, but why don't we start with you, Chris? This book is, I think the subtitle sometimes tells you what the book is about. This, this is the subtitle is how the radical left conquered everything. So Chris, how did the left, how did the radical left conquer everything? <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the key concept for understanding that um, is two things. So you look at the title as America's cultural revolution. Um, it's not an economic revolution. It's not a, a typical or orthodox uh, Marxist revolution, let's say. You know, the, the radical left didn't take over the Ford factory, um, you know, in Detroit and start pumping out, uh, you know, school buses or whatever. Um, the, the, the radical left conquered everything in terms of our cultural institutions, in terms of our knowledge forming and opinion forming institutions. And, and the key concept for understanding how they did it, what their method was, was outlined in the early 1970s by a philosopher named Herbert Marcuse and then one of his disciples, a, actually a German uh, activist named Rudy Duchka, or you know, as he was known at the time, Red Rudy. And they came up with this concept together that they formulated called the Long March Through the Institutions. Alluding, of course, to Mao Zedong's um, 
long march uh, in the communist revolution in China, um, but then transposing it into a cultural and institutional uh, uh, objective that was most relevant in the West and specifically in the United States. And the, the, the basics of it are pretty simple. They said, we're going to take our radical ideas, we're going to uh, take over, infiltrate, rise within the established institutions, universities, schools, media, corporations, and then slowly achieve dominance, uh, ideological dominance from within. And then once we gain enough power and position, ruthlessly impose our ideology as the orthodoxy within those institutions. And it was a 50-year campaign that, unfortunately, as I document, um, has succeeded. And I think that you know, more or less everyone saw that vividly during the summer of George Floyd, when all of a sudden every institution in the country appeared to be in the grips of an ideological fervor, supporting BLM, supporting CRT, supporting gender theory. Um, and, and so many Americans asked, well, how did this happen so suddenly? And the, the mission of the book, the goal of the book is to, to answer that question at length so that people can really understand how we got where we are today. Well, let's get into it a little bit. I mean, it, it doesn't seem obvious that the radical left would have been so successful, that it would have taken over the universities, that it would have taken over the big corporations. I mean, it seems to me that one of the key moves it makes is that it abandons class. And so we're in the midst of this massive realignment now where the Republicans are trying to become the party of the working class that the left has become the party of elites. But that seems like the exact opposite of what the left was historically. So you describe, you know, there's this move in the that I, you know, I wrote about in San Francisco that I think people are familiar with, where it really it's Gramsci, Foucault, other kind of new left figures start to bring, they start to basically elevate non-economic concerns as revolutionary and competitive with class. And I remember when in the 90s, when I was a young Marxist, um, reading these debates between people in places like New Left Review about how whether the left should whether class should continue to be the main event for for Marxists and socialists or whether it should be displaced. There's a very influential book called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy by Leclau, Ernesto Leclau and Chantal Mouffe that comes out in this period. But what you've seen then over the last 30 years is not just that that class has not only been abandoned, but that the radical left really becomes the party of the elites. And to some extent, this is already always there with the um, radical chic, the, you know, the famous essay by Tom Wolfe, where you see and it's in San Francisco and it's in Manhattan. It's in the exact same. It's in all the bluest of the blue places you would expect it. But there was always sort of an FDR left. You know, my mom was more of an FDR Democrat than, a, than I think my dad was more new left Democrat. I mean, they were, you know, the, their politics, though, were never so different as to threaten the, mar threaten the marriage, at least not for that reason. Um, but I mean, there is something where it's like, doesn't the, isn't that what's, what you're really describing is also the left abandons class, um, even in the name of, um, of doing a, a so-called Marxist revolution, but it's like Marxism without the class, which is like maybe the strangest, I mean, you, you couldn't imagine a bigger betrayal of Marx than that. That's it. That's exactly what it is. And, and it's, it's Marxism without Marx. So it's, it's Marxism where the, the spirit or the essence of the movement has been um, rejected and replaced with something 
synthetic and artificial, right? I mean, these are elites manipulating words, symbols, policies in order to achieve revolution uh, in name only because the revolution they're achieving is ultimately just designed to reinforce their own status. And, and so you look at something like critical race theory. It's like, what does critical race theory offer, let's say, a um, you know, the, 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 the residents of a public housing project in Memphis. Um, and I say that example because I spent time researching life in the public housing project in Memphis. Critical race theory doesn't have to offer them anything. I mean, it, there, there's not even a grappling with that question of, of how can you improve the life for, um, uh, 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 let's say, black communities at the, at the fringes, at the, at the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, those questions have been evaporated from the analysis in CRT. It's all about how can we get faculty jobs and, and you know, create affirmative action policies so that we can you know, step up in places like Harvard and Stanford and UCLA. Um, you know, and, and, so you, and then they still call themselves Marxists, which is kind of a funny double meaning. And I've, I actually have taken great joy in, in actually pinning them on that question. Well, you guys say you're Marxists, so you're Marxists and then making a, a big a rhetorical move to that effect. And there was a, a really beautiful moment during the CRT debates in which Kimberly Crenshaw was on Joy Reid. Joy, Joy Reid asks this question that is just amazing because, you know, uh, because it betrays her ignorance. She says, well, the, the conservatives and Chris Rufo are saying that critical race theory is Marxist. You know, she's saying this to the founder of, of, of CRT, but it's not Marxist, right? And Crenshaw looks into the camera with a look of, uh-oh, um, <laughs> narrative violation, and she doesn't answer the question. She doesn't deny it, which is, of course, a, would have been a lie, but she doesn't affirm it either. She just ducks it. And so I think it reveals the, 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 the hollowness of the ideology, that it is Marxist in its pretensions and in its self-identification. It's not really Marxist in its practical politics. And then when it's actually subjected to public debate, um, it, for, they get scared and they, and they run away from their own uh, ideology, their own, their own principles, their own stated beliefs. Um, and so it, it's, it's a really interesting moment and the progression of these ideas that I thought was just fascinating to follow yeah. through time. Yeah. I mean, it seems like on the one hand you say it's, it's hollow, but in another way it's very um, rich and complicated and it has like it had, there's so many contradictions that it has to address that it becomes very byzantine and i mean and of course you and i have talked about this a lot and certainly anybody that reads public or listens to public knows our view which is that that wokeism what we call the radical left today is a religion it's a victimhood ideology i recently gave a talk at university of austin at dallas <laughs> I always joke because that's where they had the University of Austin was at Dallas. Um, oh, wow. I, rec I recently gave a talk where I really was like, let me focus on these three big ones, climate, race, and trans. And with the three of them, you get a pretty robust religious worldview. The world is coming to an end, so there's an apocalypse, unless we get right by nature, which is what we used to say about God. We have a new moral order. It's called BIPOC, and we know who's on top, and we know who's on bottom, and it's racist, and it's victimhood ideology, and it's a kind of social order that we're going to change everything, the universities, the law system, the healthcare system around. 
And then there's trans, which says that humans are gods and we're able to reshape our bodies to be whatever sex we want. There is no category more fundamental than, than sort of human imagination and power. I look at that and I go, look, yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a religion without transcendence or redemption or gratitude. <laughs> um, but it is a religion and it's, and it's so powerful precisely because it's meeting the, um, the desires and needs that are unmet by the Darwinian story, which had, has really taken over that really took over liberalism. And I'm, I'm wondering if you, if what you, if that's a part of your, the story you tell too, or am I overly, am I giving it too much credit and it's really just much more fragile and hollow than, than the way I've been thinking about it as? Well, I think it's both simultaneously. I mean, it's both complex, rich, robust, uh, multi-layered, um, because it is now the establishment orthodoxy within so many large institutions. And so it's, it's, it's by necessity, just by the scale and, and institutional demands has gone off in all these different directions. And, and they've produced, I mean, you know, I just did a story for the Daily Mail in part of the book promo where I discovered that the University of Florida told the governor that it had 31 DEI programs. But through public records requests, I discovered that in fact, they had more than a thousand separate DEI programs. And so multiply that by every university, every HR bureaucracy, every school DEI program. I mean, you have millions of projects that are building out the kind of uh, scaffolding for this ideology and and yet the internal contradictions and the internal fragility of these ideas um, is 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 absolutely immense so there's this tension between the self-confident institutional image and the underlying uh, intellectual emptiness of it, spiritual emptiness. And, and I think that I've thought a lot about this and haven't come to a firm conclusion. So maybe, maybe, maybe you'll persuade me, but I wonder if it's actually not helpful to think of it as a religion um, be, because it's, it's a, it's a deeply atheistic uh, pursuit. Um, it's, it, it's a religion without, um, without God. It's a religion without, without religion itself. And so is it the is it a form of religion? Is it a substitute for a religious space that has been emptied? Or is it um, a kind of the, the, the antithesis or the dialectical opposite of religion? Um, the, the, the kind of nihilism, uh, the nihilistic um, uh, impulse? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but um, I, I think it's, a, it's an important one. Well, yeah, and you know, and as you know, I'm obsessed with it. And so, of course, it was on my mind reading this, which is, well, let me ask it more as a question then. So, sort of, if you kind of go, there's a lot of things going on that's driving, that's giving the radical left its power. Um, you know, one of them that we, we, just we just talked about is declining traditional faiths. Um, and this ideology is so apocalyptic you know i mean that's what you sort of open with um marcuse um you know they're they're it's so i mean revolutionary movements are so apocalyptic it's, it's striking from the book um and um but then there's also sort of it it, it gets rid of class so it doesn't it stops challenging 
the stuff that had traditionally gotten in the way of the left taking power in the past, which is fundamentally <laughs> or, you know, and, and, and when it had occurred, it had been absolutely disastrous and resulting in tens of millions of deaths. Um, other, so would you kind of go if you kind of go what how what is your your account? Is it sort of, you know, it's they get rid of class. They I think I'm I'm offering they 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 capture that religious impulse. Is there something else that you think is dry that is giving the left, the radical left, its power to be able to achieve this astonishing revolution that you chronicle? Yeah, I, I, I'm. If you think about it, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of different elements to the, to, 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 the, to power, to the acquisition of power. Um, I, I think that they were masters at manipulating human emotions, um, and of course, emotions. Are, are, are what move people into action. I think that they have, they had and they continue to have superior uh, verbal mastery so that they can con control the symbols and narratives and stories that society tells itself um, in a way that leads society in the direction that is predetermined by their vocabulary. Um, I, and I think also they have, uh, they had and they continue to have um, enormous willpower. So the actual tenacity and follow through and self-discipline in some ways and, and just desire that it takes to impose their vision on institutions. And then at the same time, I think conservatives who are the traditional, you know, bulwark against it, the, the kind of image of the strong, silent, responsible administrators of the institutions that regulated um, irrationality or regulated radicalism um, abandoned their posts in 1968 and then institution after institution after institution the process of capture was able to basically occur um, without resistance until the point where people actually woke up in 2020 and understood what have we done the past 50 years we've abandoned all of our commitments and and all of our uh, uh, responsibilities with the institutions. Um, and I think that's how we essentially got where we are today. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Publix Podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.